Back to the book of Isaiah, we return this morning, to which I invite you to turn your attention with me. Chapter 38 will be the focus of our attention today. Isaiah chapter 38. We have not seen much of King Hezekiah in this prophecy. Isaiah has not busied himself with the details of the reigns of any of the human kings in Judah. One king has filled his eyes, the king, capital K, king of earth and heaven. And all the other kings, even the kings in Judah, have served as but the platform on which God demonstrates and accomplishes his own sovereign will. Other books of the Bible do, however, contain uh, more information about the kings themselves. And from them we learn a little more about Hezekiah uh, himself. After what we saw of Hezekiah last week, you will not be surprised to find out that he was a man. Hezekiah was of deep faith and prayer. The great reformation of worship under his watch was saturated with prayer. Uh, For example, when he reinstituted the Passover feast, we read in 2 Chronicles 30, there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. The majority of those people, many of them from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, and yet they had eaten the Passover Now, the reason that they were able to eat the Passover, from which they most certainly otherwise would have been uh, barred, was that Hezekiah prayed for them. He prayed, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah's prayer, and he healed the people. Later, when the terrifying news came that the Assyrians under Sennacherib were invading Judah, uh, it was Hezekiah who rallied the people in Jerusalem to faith. Be strong, he said, and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than there are with him." He went on to say, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Well, last week we saw the result of that, didn't we? The outcome of all of that struggle. The Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. But Hezekiah prays one day, and the next they wake up, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lay dead. Hezekiah was a man who was mighty in prayer. At the height of his strength, when he was on his knees. Now that inner life of prayer will come to, literally to, the crisis of his life. In the text we read today, after first, we pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the same reason that Hezekiah prayed. Because we would that your name would be honored 
and lifted up and glorified. And toward that end, we pray that you will send your spirit mightily to open our ears and our hearts to receive your word as it is your word. And that um, our lives will be conformed to your truth more and more, even though so many things in your word uh, are set to remind us how great you are and beyond our understanding. What you have revealed to us, O oh God, we pray, give us and give us with understanding. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hezekiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. The sign, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion he breaks All my bones from day to night you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or crane I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me. And he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live. And in these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. 
But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and will play We will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them take take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Last week we overheard God say a very remarkable thing to King Hezekiah, didn't we? Remember what it was? Remember after Hezekiah prays to the Lord about Sennacherib and his invading army, lays out Sennacherib's letter before him and calls out to him, God replies to Isaiah with a most striking statement. He says, Because... You have prayed. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him, and on he goes, as you remember. I say that is remarkable because God, as much as tells Hezekiah that his work, that this action, this word, is as a result of his prayer. In response to his prayer, God will bring judgment on Sennacherib. There is a relationship, you see, of causality between uh, prayer, human prayer, and divine activity. That is so remarkable because great as Hezekiah was, he was still a man. Still flesh and blood, just like you are, just like I am, yet God dignifies his prayer by making it, according to his own word, the cause of his action. This morning, we come to what must be an even more remarkable example of this. Hezekiah has fallen ill, he's sick, and Isaiah is told by God to inform him that this is the end. He will never Recover, so get his house in order, he will die. Isaiah's never been mistaken before. You know, this is not a case of uh, miscommunication here. The message is plain. Thus saith the Lord. But Hezekiah doesn't stop, you see, upon getting this news to reason his way through this issue. Doesn't wrestle with the finer points of God's sovereignty and eternal decrees and, and so on. And therefore, the propriety of asking God for whatever he wants. Yes, the Lord has spoken, but Hezekiah has developed a reflex over the years, you see, that when bad news comes to Hezekiah, no matter where it comes from, even if it comes from the very mouth of God, he goes to prayer, right to prayer, immediately to prayer. So it comes as no surprise when we see him do just that today. 
And we imagine Isaiah is hardly out of the front door of the palace when God tells him to go back in and tell Hezekiah that he has heard his prayers, he has seen his tears, and he's going to give him 15 more years. Now what is so remarkable about this is the fact that God is not one to change his mind. In fact, he says so himself in the scripture. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, or has he said rather, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? Other passages speak just as clearly of his fixed, sovereign, eternal, unchangeable will. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. And passages like this one, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Later on in this very same prophecy in Isaiah, we'll hear God say, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not yet, uh, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed and I will do it. So if God knows the beginning from the end, if he's ordained everything that comes to pass long before it happened, and his will is both eternal and immutable, that is to say unchangeable, then what is going on here? Why should Hezekiah, for one, why should Hezekiah pray at all? You know, and, and, and for that matter, why should we? What does praying really do if God already knows the end from the beginning? Why should we ask for anything if God's worked it all out? Anyway, we're certainly not telling God in prayer something he doesn't know. Hezekiah knew that. Hezekiah was a bright man, yet that did not stop him from praying. Other people in the Bible knew that too. The Apostle Paul, expositor par excellence of the doctrines of sovereignty and predestination, could speak of God's sovereign choice of a people for himself before they were even born. Salvation, he boldly proclaimed, was not a matter of man's efforts or man's desires, but only of God's eternal choice. Paul even rebukes people who dare to raise an objection that predestination is unfair. And yet right in the center of all of that argument in the book of Romans that we considered now over a year ago, he drops this into chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God. For Israel is this, that they might be saved. You see, like Hezekiah, Paul has no problem whatsoever holding with full force to the absolute, eternal, unchangeable decrees of God and at the very same time issuing a plea to God in prayer for the salvation of Israel. He holds to both. Jesus himself 
knew during his own lifetime that it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge that he would be put to death, being nailed to the cross. Over and again, he told his dull disciples that this was the case. Yet that did not stop him from falling on his knees to the ground in Gethsemane to pray that, if possible, this might be removed from him. What can we say from such examples that these men were confident that uh, in the eternal, immutable, sovereign plan of God and at the same time that that same God hears and answers and responds to prayer. In fact, it seems plain that it was precisely their confidence in the immutability and the unchanging will of God that sent them to prayer in the first place. God does what he wants according to the eternal counsel of his will, but he also responds to human prayer. Now, please don't ask me to explain this to you. I can't. Now, no one can, not fully at least, There have been some theories, of course. Gallons of ink have been spilled over the centuries trying to reconcile these two truths. Some have decided that, despite the Bible's own plain speaking to the contrary, there must be some way in which our praying changes God's mind. It it turns him in his tracks. It causes him to think new thoughts. Along those same lines, I... I've even read some people describe God and and heard them, and you have too, describe God in terms of dependence. That God simply must have our prayers, that he, he depends on our prayers, depends on them and finds himself unable, his hands tied until they're freed by a prayer of people. Rubbish. Absolute poppycock. All of that. God does not need anyone or anything outside of himself. His eternal will is not dependent on the creatures, not in the least. And yet, he calls us to pray over and over and over again in the Bible. Commands like these, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. O people, pour out your hearts before him. Or pray without ceasing. Or continue steadfastly in prayer. And so on. The Bible has no problem with holding to both God's eternal unchangeable plan and the urgent need for Christians to be constantly in prayer asking God to do this or do that, to grant this request or that request. What is more, he gives us examples like this one, in which it is prayer that makes all the difference. Hezekiah, it is clear, would have died of this illness had he not prayed. And it is precisely because he prayed. And it is an answer to his prayer that he received 15 more years of life. 
A classic example of the relationship between prayer and events as described by Jesus' own uh, brother James, half-brother, we sometimes say in those famous words, you have not because you ask not. There are things we enjoy, brothers and sisters, blessings that are ours right now, events that have taken place according to the Bible's own reasoning now, that would not have taken place, would not be ours, had we not asked for them. And contrarily, there are things we do not have. There are events that have not taken place for the simple reason that you have neglected to ask. You have not because you ask not. Somehow, somehow God involves your prayers in his actions, rolls them into his sovereign will in his marvelous way that can only really, truly, finally be understood in the divine mind itself, not in our little finite mind. What we've come up against here, my brothers and sisters, is yet another example of God's thoughts being far beyond ours. God's ways being way higher than ours. I do think that some men smarter than I have have perhaps come to a little bit closer understanding of this. C.S. Lewis, for example, wrestling with this very question, observed this. Infinite wisdom does not need telling what is best. And infinite goodness needs no urging to do it. Neither does God need any of those things that are done by finite agents, whether living or inanimate. He could, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food. Or give us food without the aid of farmers, bakers, and butchers. Or knowledge without the aid of learned men. Or convert the heathen without missionaries. Instead, he allows soils and weather and animals and muscles, minds and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. God, said Pascal, instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality. Well, maybe that helps. It is a great dignity, as Pascal sets, that that dignity of causality that we enjoy in prayer. But I still find myself much closer to the prince of preachers. Uh, His answer concerning the relationship uh, between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, of which uh, prayer is just a specie alongside things like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation and so on, predestination and faith and repentance. That God's eternal choice of a person to save him or her accompanied by the requirement that must be met of faith and uh, repentance in order to be saved. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, I believe in predestination. Yea, even in its very jots and tittles, I believe that the path of a single grain of dust in the March wind is ordained and settled by a decree which cannot be violated. 
that every word and thought of man, every flittering of the sparrow's wing, every flight of a fly, that everything, in fact, is foreknown and foreordained. But I do equally believe in the free agency of man, that man acts as he wills especially in moral operations, choosing the evil with a will that is unbiased by anything that comes from God, biased only by his own depravity of heart and the perverseness of his habits. Choosing the right, too, with perfect freedom, though sacredly guided and led by the Holy Spirit, I believe that man is as accountable as if there were no destiny whatsoever. Were these two doctrines, or where, rather, these two doctrines meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me, says Spurgeon, since I have given up my mind to believing both. So I've given myself to believing both. And you, my brothers and sisters, must do the same. In the arena of prayer, both are 100% true with no conflict and no contradiction whatsoever. God has foreordained whatever comes to pass from all eternity. And you must pray. Because if you do not, you may find that you have not. The answer is to trust as if it all depends on God. And to pray as though it all depends on you. I think in the end, it's a hymn writer actually who summarizes best or at least as well as anyone possibly can, what's going on when we pray in these two simple lines of poetry. Prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. Prayer was appointed to convey the blessings God designs to give. In other words, God loves to bless his children But he loves to bless them in response to their requests. He had the blessing of 15 more years of life in store for Hezekiah, but they would not be Hezekiah's until Hezekiah asked for them. You here who are parents, I think, I'd be able to understand that too. You are pleased, more than pleased, to plan and to provide for your children's needs and freely to do so. But it is pleasing all the more to you and for several reasons, so much better for them if they learn to ask first. 
children to ask for them. I don't know what the Lord has in store for you, my brothers and sisters, any more than I know what He has in store for me.